Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I'm going to tell you two stories today, a short one about dead cats and a long one about dead people. First, dead cats. Now, I know you might be tired of so many talks beginning with stories about dead cats, but bear with me. My parents' views on pets, cats, or otherwise could not have been more different. My mother, pictured here, grew up in a household that didn't allow animals in the house. My dad grew up in a home where pets, at one point including even a monkey, pictured here with my grandfather, were allowed inside. Over their 60-some-odd years of marriage, my parents struck a bit of compromise about pets in our home. Smaller, cage-bound animals such as hamsters, snakes, frogs, toads, and fish were allowed inside, but larger animals such as cats, dogs, and any animal destined to become dinner stayed in the garage the doghouse or the chicken coop. Dogs were confined, but cats were free to roam. Well, they were free to roam as long as I didn't pick them up and dress them in my doll's clothing. A fate the cat in this photo is clearly contemplating with a mixture of trepidation and resignation. When I was very young, we lived on a busy intersection with constant traffic. The combination of this location and the pet policy meant that cats, and there seemed to be an endless parade of them that somehow ended up at our house, rarely died of old age. I liked the cats, and I mourned their loss, and at some point I began to memorize the names and faces of all the cats who had lived, loved, and then shuffled off their mortal coils at our house. Eventually, I was unable to keep all of the memories and names straight, and in concern, I asked my mom if all those cats would meet us in heaven and if they would recognize us and we remember them. She assured me they would, that cats, such as the one I'm holding in this photograph, would remember me and I it forever. Now, the impact of that story isn't so much about the cats or what this photo clearly reveals about my early knack for fashion. (laughs) It is about my mother's assurances that relationships last, much like this photograph of the two of us has lasted far beyond the moment it captured. Relationships are durable and meaningful, even beyond death. This idea was central to my childhood. As the youngest of nine children, I arrived after three of my four grandparents, a handful of cousins, and my brother had died. Knowing that death would not forever prevent me from knowing those people was deeply comforting and grounding. In a way, that early understanding about relationships has shaped my professional pursuits. I've spent my entire adult life studying relationships, particularly family relationships, and the power they have, for good or ill, to shape social, economic, religious, political, material, and emotional possibilities and realities. My research focuses mostly on 18th century England. This means I study dead people and what they can teach us. As Thomas LeCur has put it, the history of the dead is a history of how they dwell in us individually and communally. It is a history of how we imagine them to be, how they give meaning to our lives. It is a history of how we invest the dead with meaning. My research has taught me much about the meaning found in social and familial relationships in the past and today, 
as well as their undervalued potential to positively influence society and afford solutions for vaccine problems. So let's talk about some of those dead people. I'm going to begin with the story of a particular dead person, William Dade. He was born in late 1740 or early 1741 in Yorkshire in Northern England. His parents, who married in their early 30s, already had three children when William was born. His father was the local vicar who had a handful of additional livings or parishes that supplied his employment and income. So William and his siblings, a sister and two brothers, were raised in relative comfort that typified the genteel middling sort of England as the phrase went. I don't have a portrait of any Dade family members, but this painting of a similarly constituted clergy family of the period gives you some idea. William was educated in New Yorkshire schools, requiring him to live away from home for long stretches of the year. Once they reached their late teens, both William and his eldest brother, Thomas, followed their father's path, first to the University of Cambridge and then into the church. Their mother died when William was 12 and their father when William was 18, around the time he entered Cambridge. Two years later, his brother John died at age 22 and was buried alongside their parents in the parish church where their father had been vicar. A monument to their collective memory, likely commissioned by William and his surviving siblings, hangs in the church to this day. At the time of their father's death, Thomas, 24 and single, had been ordained, and 23-year-old Mary, who was also single, presumably lived with him, or perhaps with William, who left Cambridge that same year. Within two years, William had his own living in the city of York when he was only 22. So far, this is a rather unremarkable story of an 18th century English family. Their parents marrying in their early 30s was not unusual for those who came of age in the early 1700s. On average, women married at age 26 and men at age 28 in that period. It was not unusual for children to die young or to die before their parents, though it was more common in infancy and childhood than in young adulthood, as it was in William's brother's case. In some places, a third or more of children did not survive to see their 10th birthday. Children of most classes, no matter their wealth, left home for employment or schooling in their mid-teens, as the Dade brothers had. This included most young women, though not usually women of the gentry or aristocracy. That the Dade siblings were not married in their mid-twenties was also not unusual for their cohort, which also coincided with large numbers of people who never married, somewhere between 15 to 20 percent in the middle of the 18th century. For comparison, current UK statistics suggest that as little as 4 percent, and perhaps no more than 9 percent of the population, never marries or partners. That the brothers followed their father's occupational path into the church is similarly unremarkable. Between a quarter and a third of 18th century English clergymen were the sons of clergy. This was typical of the 18th century that perpetuated, often with great vigor, socioeconomic distinctions and inequalities. Also typically, sibling relationships were important to the Dade family. Their parents marrying later and dying relatively young meant that, the Dade sibling, that for the Dade siblings and many people in this period, siblinghood was the most central and durable of family relationships. People depended on siblings for a host of material, social, and emotional support. They were close or not in ways that might look familiar to you and to the people pictured in these slides. They had great solidarity and great power that few other relationships did. They continue to have great power and influence today as this next set of pictures, particularly the one in the middle, 
show. Let's just say that if any other adult suggested you wear matching outfits, get matching haircuts, and have your picture taken, the happiness depicted here would not be the likely outcome. <laughs> like today, 18th century siblings were lifelong, but unlike today, they were often on their own, at the center of family relationships. Siblings came before spouses and children who arrived late in life, if they arrived at all, and they outlasted parents who often died before all of their children reached age 30. When siblings fought and struggled with each other, even when their relationships weren't perfect, like some of you and your siblings, or like these boys, <laughs> or like this sister, trying to prevent her brother from tipping over her doll and tea set. It was not always easy to navigate a relationship one did not choose, but which was freighted with so many lifelong expectations. As one 18th century man wrote to his brother, three wise words from your lips made me think you an inhabitant of another country. You have the art to set me at a distance by three words when I am with you and to draw me to you at 100 miles off by the same method. But to return to William Dade, his story to this point, his late 20s, was unremarkable and like thousands of others. But in 1770, as he entered his 30s, William made a remarkable decision. He decided that Church of England parish registers should contain more information than they typically did. He wanted, in his words, to improve, quote, the imperfect method hitherto generally pursued. If you think that doesn't sound all that earth-shattering to change English parish registers, just be patient with me, because this was an astounding development a development that had with untapped potential to better the world today. First, I need to put William Dade's parish registers into a bit of context. English church registers began after Henry VIII's break with Rome and the establishment of the Church of England in the 1530s. From then until the 18th century, entries for baptisms, marriages, and burials typically had limited information. Baptism records might record only the name of the child, the date of the baptism, and the name of the child's father. Compared to continental registers, for example, English registers contained paltry information. For comparison, this example of a Spanish record from 1764 contains not only the child and father's names, but also the mother's, including her original or maiden name, both sets of grandparents and the godparents' names. Even in the first half of the 18th century, English registers became only marginally better. Mother's first names, for example, were increasingly included. Sometimes extra bits and pieces might be included. Birth dates for the child or occupation of the father might sometimes appear. William Dade himself benefited from an unusually detailed entry for his christening because his father was a vicar. The priest who baptized William in a different parish took the time to include William's father's occupation and residence, though William's mother was not named. Dade followed common practice when he first became a curate and recorded the limited information other priests did but then in 1770, he began to record more information, such as father's occupation, residence, and family connections. He also encouraged other vicars and rectors to follow suit. Some did, but the real boost to his scheme came when the Archbishop of York encouraged the practice throughout the diocese in 1777. Some vicars obeyed, many did not, and many resented it and gave up after a short time. William's brother Thomas might have been in one of those latter groups, as the registers in his parishes show no such effort to record additional information. Dade was interested in local history, but that interest seems to have come later than his scheme to improve parish registers. 
It was perhaps his exposure to the old records stored in Paris churches that inspired his interest in historical research. He was inducted into the Society of Antiquaries in 1783, and he began two books, one on the local history of Holderness, where he had attended school as a boy, and the other a list of births, marriages, and deaths of prominent people. It wasn't just to record extra information or to be a better record keeper that set William apart. Other clergy had similar inclinations. The switch to record more information for Dade did not come from an historical interest or passion for the past, as much as it came from a concern for the future. As he wrote in the register when he began his efforts, this scheme, if properly put in execution, will afford much clearer intelligence to the researches of posterity than the imperfect method hitherto generally pursued. He reasoned that families in the future would want to know more about the past, particularly their personal past. What motivated him was future people and their needs. Dade was thinking of how his actions could echo beyond his lifetime into strangers' lives. At its heart, this is what Ari Wallach in a recent TED Talk described as transgenerational thinking. Wallach is referring to an ethic that thinks beyond one's own comfort and considers how actions ripple into the future, long beyond an individual lifespan. Implicit in Dade's actions and in Wallach's argument are two aspects of human instinct. First, the ability to think about, imagine, and plan for the future. And second, the impulse and capacity to think of strangers beyond ourselves. The ability to plan for the future, to think about how today's actions will shape tomorrow, is unique to humans, an ability that separates us from all other living creatures. Nicely summed up by the psychologist Daniel Gilbert, quote, we think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ubiquitous, ordinary act is a defining feature of our humanity. No chimpanzee, according to Gilbert, can, quote, weep at the thought of growing old, smile as it contemplates its summer vacation, or turn down a fudgesicle because it already looks too fat in shorts. <laughs> Apparently, only we have that honor even though we aren't always very good at using that skill to best serve ourselves and others. We have another distinguishing characteristic that has great power, though again, we don't always use it powerfully or for good either. That is the ability to cooperate with strangers, to act in their best interest, even in contradiction of our own interests. In fact, the ability to act cooperatively and even altruistically is one of the greatest achievements of humanity. Evolutionary biologists remark on this and assert that we are literally built to cooperate with others, not just with those we know or are related to, but with innumerable strangers. And it isn't just cooperation. Humans have evolved a unique capacity to care about and have compassion for strangers, to take responsibility for strangers. We are built, in other words, to belong to one another. In fact, without this ability, we could not form effective groups of much larger than 150 people. But with this ability, we harness the power of millions and billions. In such large groups, when we ignore this capacity for caring, suicide, addiction, unhappiness, avariciousness expand. But when we act on this impulse, large groups of humans are capable of, are biologically built for, great goodness. I don't think I need to detail the ways that we have clearly not fully tapped into this goodness, that though we are built for compassion, for care, for love, we are also, in King Benjamin's formulation, fallen, weak, incapable of acting on our best instincts, and even enemies to all our best, even divine impulses. But the fact remains, we are built to cooperate with and belong to, not just our kin, but all humanity. 
Atheists, philosophers, historians, podcasters, Holocaust survivors, writers, therapists, military veterans, ministers, and psychologists concur with the biologists. Building lasting relationships and connections with other people is the only way to live happy and meaningful lives. The author and atheist Alain de Botton, whose essay on marriage relationships was the most read article on the New York Times website in 2016. Krista Tippetts, who runs the podcast on being. Victor Frankel, who survived a concentration camp. Christian social worker Brene Brown. War veteran and journalist Sebastian Junger. Historian of Mormon theology Samuel Brown. Congregationalist historian and archivist Margaret Bendrith, Methodism's founder John Wesley, and BYU's own psychology professor Brent Slife do not, on the surface, seem to have much in common. But they all landed in the same spot, asserting that building relationships with others, loving others, is the most important work of humanity, not the byproduct, but the purpose of life. In Slife's words at a recent devotional, loving others must be an end, not a means. And in John Wesley's words, quote, the gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. This winding through fields deciding, decidedly not related to my research experience and training may seem like a long sidetrack, but it demonstrates that when William Dade started his, stated his reasons for adding more information to parish registers, he tapped into two apparently universal human abilities, to think about the future and the inclination to belong, to connect. In that respect, he was maybe not so exceptional. His actions are ones that we could theoretically replicate. It was his combination of these two human behaviors that made him exceptional. The social scientists, authors, and journalists I've just listed have emphasized the importance of relationships or discussed the ability to plan for the future. But Dade was doing both simultaneously. He was thinking about relationships across time, across vast stretches of time and he was thinking beyond the barrier of personal acquaintance to encompass strangers. Many people before him thought of their famous ancestors or about their posterity or about enforcing rules about who constituted sufficiently illustrious ancestors and sufficiently legitimate posterity. Dade, on the other hand, stitched together his interests in the past to the lived daily lives of the people whose details filled the books he kept and then stitched that to the concerns and desires of future strangers. That's not just transgenerational thinking. That is what I call genealogical consciousness. Genealogical consciousness is an ethic, a moral way of behaving based on seeing oneself and one's actions as inextricably linked with past, present, and future people's lives and hopes. Hoping future genealogists would have clearer intelligence in their research doesn't sound like much of a gift, but the real power in Dade's actions is that he considered himself and all those future strangers as connected, that he could do something for them, something that came with no possibility of reward for himself, something they'd be grateful for. He saw them, frankly, as people, not objects, not abstractions, not as something unimportant to himself. Genealogical consciousness means seeing how past, present, and future are connected, again, not in an abstract sense, but in the lived reality of actual thinking, feeling people, and how they and we are connected over time and space. This echoes an idea from Margaret Bendrith, the archivist at the Congregationalist Library. Quote, instead of defining ourselves through associations with one's famous people, or taking our ancestors too lightly by assuming they were not as complex as we are, we should want an encounter with the past that will challenge and deepen us, end quote. Similarly, we need an encounter with the future that challenges and deepens us. 
Now, most humans want to be remembered, to leave something that lasts beyond their lifespan, no matter the scale of that remembrance. In the words of Umberto Eco, we make lists because we do not want to die. Indeed, what are the Book of Chronicles and all the pyramids, tombs, and masses for the dead, if not hopeful expressions that we will be remembered? What else would have motivated the builder of my home in 1951 to write his name on the plaster that was about to be canvassed and painted over, if it was not some vestigial hope that the recording of his name would grant him a measure of immortality that the bricks he used and the walls he built could not? But Dade wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't clamoring to be remembered. He was thinking of, well, us, of future strangers he would never know, and of our need to belong and be connected to something larger and longer lasting than ourselves. The posterity William Dade imagined appreciating his efforts was not his own. He remained childless until his death in 1790, as did his sister, who died in 1782 and his remaining brother also died childless in 1806. The detailed forms Dade created and which recorded his and his sister's deaths versus the sloppy but more typical account of their brother's burial show that Dade's innovation had limited reach. He and his family passed into obscurity. In fact, despite his importance to English genealogy, his family did not appear as a group on either of the two largest collections of online family trees until this summer, when in researching this talk, I organized and grouped together the Dade family files on FamilySearch's family tree. And it wasn't just the knowledge of Dade's family that died out. Despite additional Church of England clergy adopting his pattern, his remarkable idea did not survive long. The practice largely disappeared after 1813, when regulations about the Church of England registers changed. Parish registers were now required to be kept in pre-printed books that limited the flexibility that had allowed Dade to think of registers more expansively. Some vicars continued to squeeze in the extra bits of information into the printed boxes, even into the 1840s, but the practice largely disappeared, never to return. And other than people researching their ancestors in these records, no one knows about William Dade anymore. Well, except now all of you. Um, but all was not lost for genealogical consciousness. Joseph Smith, Wilford Woodruff, and Susie Young Gates all took their personal religious and spiritual experiences and used them to think about all of humanity across all time and our connections to one another and to God. We should pause here and recognize Susie Young Gates's remarkable work that is often less well known than Joseph Smith's or Wilford Woodruff's. Prominent in late 19th century and early 20th century Mormon leadership, founder of the Young Women's Journal and the Relief Society magazine, and active in the struggle for women's suffrage, Gates was also passionate about genealogy. In the 1890s, she collected information from living relatives and traveled to archives in the East to conduct research. In 1902, she fell seriously ill and received a blessing. In the blessing, she was told she would continue to perform temple work, but that she would also, quote, do a greater work than she had ever done before. Her understanding of this blessing turned her from someone acquiring genealogical knowledge for herself and her family to someone deeply committed to genealogical consciousness. She wrote that while she had already been interested in temple work, she now, quote, felt that I must do something more, something to help all the members of the church. After this, Gates became a formidable force in genealogical efforts for others. At that point, the LDS Church was not heavily involved in genealogy at an institutional level, though individual church members were active in the establishment of the Genealogical Society of Utah, now the Family History Department of the Church. 
Gates worked with the GSU, published genealogical articles, worked to improve the indexing of temple ordinances, founded the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, wrote genealogy lessons, wrote the first genealogical how-to manual in the United States in 1912, and made family history work central to the work of Relief Society. She did this for two decades, until the church gradually assumed greater involvement and centralization of genealogical efforts after the 1920s, which was her hoped-for goal all along. Gates's perseverance is partly attributed to her strength of character, but I'd assert it was powered by genealogical consciousness, a power that came when she felt called to do something more to benefit people beyond her own kin. So, what is genealogical consciousness for us? Some would claim a largely Mormon audience is full of genealogical consciousness, but I want to push that idea a bit further and assert that a largely Mormon audience is full of genealogical knowledge, perhaps, even genealogically-based identity, but those aren't the same as genealogical consciousness. Genealogical consciousness brings along with it an empathetic wisdom which knowledge alone cannot possess. For myself, genealogical knowledge is intriguing and thrilling. I've been filling out pedigree charts since I learned to write, and finding genealogical information is satisfying and exciting on its own terms. I dare say some of you find it equally satisfying and exciting, probably about two to five percent of you, if my, if my ward statistics on family history work are typical. And while that group can and should expand, and is frankly what my colleagues and I who teach family history majors hope will happen, it is unlikely it will ever be the majority of people. The good news is, though, that though a passionate interest in gathering genealogical knowledge itself is far from widespread, a much larger group is interested in what genealogy can do for them and their families. For example, it is estimated that a third of adults in the UK have been online to look for their ancestors. Most argue that this prevalent interest comes from genealogy's ability to give people a sense of identity. Undoubtedly, the focus on identity is the current obsession in Western genealogy, in the marketing schemes of a $5 billion a year genealogical industry, and even in some aspects of Mormon genealogical practice. But William Dade and Susie Young Gates didn't stop with personal identity. Finding a genealogical anchor for identity is valuable, as it gives a sense of roots in a time that feels rootless, even replacing religion in one Englishman's estimation as something one can believe in. But on its own, the search for identity can bring only partial belonging. Rattling on about endless genealogies in order to prove our special status is not only a tedious thing to do, it is, if we take Paul literally, a destructive thing to do. And the Savior himself warned, that being Abraham's seed was as meaningless as being a rock if it was not accompanied by a more humble way of living. If genealogy stops with individual identity, it will never fully jettison its exclusionary tendencies. Genealogy's historical association with elitist and racist claims shows that it is too easy to slip into tribalism, eugenics, racism, rabid isolationist nationalism, and us versus themism. If we focus solely on our own identity, it is easy to myopically think only our ancestors matter. We become all manner of ites, to borrow a phrase. A genealogical understanding based solely on personal identity inevitably leads to excluding others' identities, whether they are based in race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, DNA, nationality, or any other category. Genealogical consciousness, on the other hand, doesn't just avoid these pitfalls. It prevents them, has the power to obliterate them, to completely dissolve the destructive boundaries between us and them, to starkly remind there is no them, there is only us. 
to pull people together despite differences. If instead we see genealogical knowledge and even identity as tools, as means to an end, then we're on the way to genealogical consciousness. We often reverse this, prizing knowledge over the wisdom of consciousness. We race to find more names and make the consumption of more information more important than getting to know the, those who held the names we seek. This is meaningless and exhausting as we chase after ever more elusive proof of our righteous genealogical knowledge as we constantly learn but never come to a knowledge of the truth. We tire ourselves endlessly in the doing and miss the opportunity to become, thinking we can save getting to know them for later. But getting to know them is the point. It is where the real power lies, not the other way around. To paraphrase from Philippians, if there is any consolation from love, any compassion and sympathy in Christ, we need, we need to also find them in one another. We should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves. Genealogical consciousness goes beyond mere knowledge or pursuit of personal or group identity. Instead, it makes us stop to consider, to reckon, both with their lives and choices and with our own. We can also imagine our shared humanity with people in the past and the choices they confronted. I remember sitting in an English archive reading the papers of the Travel family. One day while reading Anne Travel's diary from August 1780, I discovered that her quote, dear sister-in-law and friend Martha had died suddenly at the age of 41. I teared up, mourning the loss of Martha. I stopped myself when I realized everyone from 1780 is dead. <laughs> um, but then, as I considered my response further, I realized I was not shedding tears for Martha's death as much as I was for the pain her death caused her family and friends. Anne wrote that she spent the rest of that evening writing 20 dreadful letters informing friends and family of Martha's death. I can imagine how dreadful that was, the pain of losing a lifelong friend and a much-loved sister-in-law, a person I too had grown to love as I read her letters. I further considered what a devastating blow it would be to me to lose a sibling or a sibling-in-law. It was as if, in that moment, time and distance between Anne and me just collapsed and virtually disappeared, to be replaced with a brief moment of connection and empathy. If, like Dade, we pause to consider the long since dead, we can pivot to considering present and future relationships. As Margaret Bendroth put it, the choice is not to load our ancestors down with honors or run away from them as fast as we can. Our faith requires us to take the past seriously and to receive its people warmly and wisely. It requires us to be generous and in a fundamental way, truly inclusive." End quote. And I would say it doesn't stop there because developing genealogical consciousness requires we think about strangers in the past. It develops the possibility of thinking about strangers in the present and strangers in the future to think about how our relationships and actions will last beyond death, will echo into future strangers' lives. In doing so, genealogical consciousness makes heavy demands, demands that we act more compassionately and more Christ-like. In conclusion, I'm going to explain my title, which you will notice was not read aloud today. <laughs> as a historian of the 18th century, I've grown accustomed to long narrative titles, such as the one you see here. And as a lover of fine children's literature, I'm amused by E.L. Konigsberg's title of one of my favorite children's books. But while those explain the long style of my title, they don't explain the content, and they certainly don't explain the dead cats. 
Why didn't I just entitle my talk Developing a Genealogical Consciousness, since that's the point of the talk? Because I had the suspicion, backed by decades of personal experience, that if any words resembling genealogy or family history were used to describe something to be presented to an audience of Latter-day Saints, attendance would either be virtually non-existent or would consist entirely of those already seriously, passionately, rapidly interested in family history. As much as I love that latter group, and in fact count myself among them, I wanted to reach an audience who didn't think they had anything to learn about the reasons for genealogical pursuits, or who only feel guilty or overwhelmed when the words family history are uttered. I did not want to burden that group any further. I wanted to offer an additional perspective or alternative approach. Our shared theology is replete with genealogical consciousness and its potential to create meaningful change for the better. As Patrick Mason has put it, this Mormon image of being knit together with the children of God and all our diversity inextricably and intricately interwoven is at the heart of Mormonism's social ideal. It reflects a life-affirming theology predicated on the notion that the entire family of God can and will be eternally bound together, that heaven is less about where we are than who we are with and the quality of our relationships." End quote. Genealogical consciousness is merely a label meant to underscore that relationships with other people in the past, present, and future are durable, built for the eternities, and from them we can access previously untapped minds of divine power. Simply, <coughs> Simply put, we cannot afford to treat genealogy the way we have, as something, to quote an acquaintance of mine, that dude in the third ward does. or something that is satisfied by producing stacks and stacks of temple names in order to show them off, or rattle off numbers during Sunday school to impress or guilt others. If that is why we do it, then doing so is the only reward we will ever have. More than something that dude in the third ward or your great aunt does, genealogical consciousness is a way of being, a way of thinking about your place within and responsibility to the generations surrounding you. It holds a promise to erode racism and sexism, to reduce to rubble centuries of hatred and discrimination, to bind us together when all other ways of connecting only seem to drive us ever further apart, to take our instinct to belong and shatter its tribal proclivities and replace them with inclinations to Zion. If Elijah was meant to return in order to save the world from being an utter waste, then there is more for us to do with the manifestation of the spirit that bears his name. Thank you. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.